So really, this second part of chapter 13 continues with the same theme that we looked at last week. This idea that we're calling practical worship. And if you remember, Jesus said clearly that the theme, or Jesus said, sorry, let me rephrase that. The writer made it clear that the theme of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. And because he's better, because Jesus is worthy of our worship, that worship, the writer wants us to know, needs to be displayed in practical ways. This book's been a very theological book, hasn't it? It's been very rich. There's been a lot of concepts and ideas that have forced us to look back into the Old Testament, have forced us to think about what we understand about who Jesus is and what he's accomplished. So there's been all these big, rich ideas that are really important for us to understand But he ends this book with a practical. He wants us to recognize, he wants the readers to recognize that this Jesus who's definitely better, who's worthy of our worship, that worship needs to be displayed practically. Now last week, the things that we talked about were things that you might put under the category of individual worship. How do we worship as individuals? Well, we do so by uh, abiding in brotherly love, by honoring marriage, by learning to be content. We do those as things as individuals. Whereas here, the second half seems to be really focusing on corporate worship. How do we declare the worthiness of Jesus when we're together? What should that look like? Not just uh, the, uh, in a sense of what do our church services look like, but what's our motive, what's our attitude, what are we shooting for, what are we trying to demonstrate in our worship corporately? And so this is what he's going to talk about today. And he begins with uh, this issue that is, it is, and I have to say this is hard, this is probably harder for me to talk about than the whole sex and marriage was last week. This issue of valuing those who lead you, knowing how you should look at church leadership. You can imagine this is a little bit awkward for me to talk about because I'm one of the church leaders. But he makes it really clear, doesn't he? He says in verse 7, remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, so he's speaking obviously about church leadership, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Now, what what the the writer is wanting us to do, or wanting the readers to do, is to recognize that the the, the role of church leadership is to provide for you guys a tangible example of what it means to follow Jesus. That's what we are meant to do. This is one of the reasons why I came to the conviction that leadership needs to be not one man, but plural. Because I found it was really tricky when I was just the only pastor in this church, when I started this church, it was really tricky to give you guys an example of community. Because it was hard for people to see me as their peer, and therefore there was kind of like not an even kind of giving and receiving, if that makes sense. And so when I'd open up about where I was struggling with, people would be like, oh my gosh, this is the pastor. Or, or when I'd or when I look to somebody to sort of kind of come alongside and say, can we walk with this together? They'd get all puffed up and go, yeah, no, I'm making the decisions for the pastor. And it was hard for them to kind of see, no, there's a leadership here that needs to be expressed in community, coming together. And I got to tell you, the change that happened when first Adam and Mike came on as deacons and we began to pray, make decisions together, the change that, that took place was phenomenal, both in my life and in the church. There's a need, listen, there's a need for us to set an example for you. We want to do that. Our prayer is that we would be an example, that you could look at our faith and consider the outcome. God's going to reward those guys for faithfulness. 
But you could look at our faith and say, those are not perfect men by any measure of the stick, but those are godly men who are pursuing God and they want to know Jesus. That's, that's what we, we want to do. And because of that, this is why the author, the writer is saying, remember those. Remember, these guys have given you a tangible example. Now Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul says, plainly, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Now this is the point that you need to understand. The role of leadership in setting an example is not saying, be like me. It's saying, be like Jesus. We point past ourselves. We recognize we're fallen. We recognize that we fall short. We point past ourselves. Now, there's this weird balance in this because in one sense, what I've experienced in 25 years of ministry is that those that I oversee will probably not go further spiritually than I've gone. If I'm sort of stuck at a certain level in a certain area of my life, those that, serve, that I'm serving have a hard time going past that. It's a very sobering reality. In another sense, I've got to balance that with this reality that I'm never going to be the perfect example of everything. Again, this is why we need a plurality. There are areas of, of our walks with Jesus that Adam is a much better example than I am. There's areas in our walks with Jesus that Neil or Joe are a much better example than I am, and vice versa. But the point is this, God calls us to value those who lead us because they do set a practical example. In fact, now drop down to verse 17. He continues to talk about the same thing in verse 17. Notice he says, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls. Now, as I've read what we just read in verse 7, as well in, as we read in verse 17, is anybody a little bit bothered by some of the word, words that are used there? Rule. Those who rule over you. Be submissive. Does that bug anybody? It bugs me a little bit because I don't like authority, if I'm being honest. I don't like authority. I fight authority. Authority always wins, as the song went back in the 80s. I don't like authority. Naturally speaking, I push back against authority. But you know what I've learned as a Jesus follower? As, as someone who had to, seeing his own sin, seeing who Jesus is, knew I need to bow the knee to his authority, I realize authority is a good thing. It's a good thing. It's a protective thing. Some of our good friends uh, who have watched us, my wife and I, parents for now 23 years, have thought that we're a bit too lenient with our kids. And some of our good, other good friends have thought we are way too strict with our, our kids. Now the thing is, what we've been blessed with is every one of our good friends has acknowledged it's our it's us who have the authority over our kids. And therefore, under God, we have to decide what's best for them. That's a big responsibility. Well, in a sense, this is kind of what it's like to be a church leader. The Apostle Paul talks about, he says to, um, he says, I think it's the Corinthian church, he says, you've had many teachers, but not many fathers. Those who actually will care for your, your, your souls. Paul said to the Corinthian church, I'm willing to spend and be spent for your souls. Spend and be spent. That's like parenting teenagers. Spend and be spent for your souls. There's something about parenting that, that parallels church leadership. And there's an authority here. But just like there is in parenting, there's a limit to that authority. 
it's, it's not, a, it's not a, an, a, an exclusive authority as much as it's a representative authority. So that as a parent, I'm meant to represent this, as a Christian parent, I should say, I'm meant to represent a greater authority than my own, the authority of the Lord Jesus. As a pastor, I'm made to represent the same authority, not my own authority, but the authority of the Lord Jesus. In fact, it's interesting because notice what he says in verse 17. He says, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls this way, listen, as those who must give account. The thing that I look for most, and when we, when we are developing leaders, when I'm looking for new uh, men and women to be deacons and new men to be elders, when we're looking for that, who should we develop, I want to see, listen, do they have a sense of accountability? Are they people who want to be accountable? Do you know accountability, the recognition that we are accountable to a power higher than us is the first step to salvation? Do you realize that? It's not until we recognize that there's a God we're accountable to that we even know that we need to be what we need to be saved from. When we recognize there's a God that we're accountable to, then we recognize, man, what I need to be saved from is his goodness. Because God is so good, it exposes my, exposes my badness. And if he's the authority, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. Recognizing the authority of God. This is what we mean by Jesus being Lord. Recognize the authority of Jesus Christ. It's to recognize, it's the first step of salvation. You set the standard, you say what's up, and I don't, if I don't recognize that, what do I even know what I need to be saved from? Now, now this is important because I can't parent nor pastor unless I'm a man under authority. Unless I recognize that I'm going to give account to God Almighty for how I serve you folk. And I got to tell you, there is nothing scarier in the world. I'm serious. Especially when I think about over 25 years, all the massive mistakes that I've made as a pastor. It's hard. It's hard because the standard is so high. Jesus being the great shepherd, as we'll see in a bit, I'm called to shepherd, under shepherd for him. Talk about a high standard. It's, it's scary. It's difficult. Which is why, listen, listen, it's why the writer says, submit to these guys, obey these guys. Why? Because they're going to give an account. And if you don't submit to them, you're going to make it harder for yourself. He says, in doing so, listen, let them give accounts uh, or let them serve and, and lead you for joy, with joy and not with grief, for that would be unproper for you. Let me tell you, the first several years of planting this church, there was a lot of grief. My 40th birthday, my wife can testify for this, but it was going to be my 40th birthday, seven, almost eight years ago, and she wanted to do something big for my 40th birthday. But at the time, so many of the brothers in the church, not all, some of the, those brothers are still with us. Paul was always a faithful guy to me. But some of these guys were so on my back complaining about how unhappy they were with the church. I, I was just grieved. It was so hard. So that on my 40th birthday, instead of staying here and letting my wife throw a party, which of course all the church people would be invited to, and people would go, happy birthday, and I know they'd be hating my guts the whole time. <laughs> I, I, I literally escaped and went to a conference in Germany. 
I'm not saying that to get pity. I'm saying that sometimes it's hard because what happens is all you're really wanting to do as a pastor, if you're really a pastor, if you're really under the authority of God, all you want to do is help people know Jesus, follow Jesus, love Jesus, worship Jesus. And when they want to focus on, well, how come they get that position? I don't get that position. How come, when am I get that position? And how come, how come we don't play this song instead of that song? And I want three people in kids' ministry, not four people in kids' ministry. And on and on and on it goes. You just kind of think, ooh. <laughs> and so it can, it, it can be difficult. And what, here's the problem. When that happens, when the congregation does that to the people that lead them, you know who suffers? The congregation. The congregation. Now let me be really, really, really clear about something. This being under authority means we're not just under authority of God in, in a sense of God's out there one day we're going to see him and we're going to be judged. That's true too. But we're also under the authority that God has given us which is, guess what? This book. The authority of the scripture. Look what the scripture itself says. Look what Paul says. Here's Paul, the apostle Paul who wrote a significant amount of the scripture. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 4.1, let a man so consider us, that's him and the other apostles, as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. The, the, the mysteries of God there is not things they don't understand. They're things that were unknown until they were revealed uh, by God to the apostles. So they're formerly unknown. Their mysteries now revealed. Paul says we're a steward of things. We don't create these things. We, we, we don't say these are, we have the authority. He says God's given us this truth. This truth has the authority. Our responsibility is to steward that, to make sure you understand that, to make sure you can apply that to your life. That's why Paul also said this in, in Galatians chapter 1. He says, but even if we, that is the apostles, or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Other versions say, let him be damned. Why? Because this, the gospel itself, the truth that was revealed to the apostles, that's the standard, that's the authority. See, we don't have apostles in the same way that the 12 were apostles and the apostle Paul was an apostle. We have apostles in the same way that we send people out. The word means, the apostle means sent out ones. We send people out to plant churches. So I was sent out to plant this church, which hopefully will turn into planting other churches. So there's that kind of being sent out. But I don't have any kind of apostolic authority in the same way the guys who wrote Scripture did. That authority stays with the Scripture. Are you guys following me on that? If you want to know how that works more, I, I suggest you go to our website and look up, I think it's the second uh, teaching we did in the book of Acts where we talk about apostolic authority in the scriptures. The point is this, listen, the, the authority that these guys have, that leaders have in the church, is an authority as, as stewards of biblical authority. This is why we teach this book systematically. Because we want you to know what God in his good authority wants to do in and through your life. We want you to know. We don't want to just say, here's 10, ten ways to have a better life. Seven ways to defeat the giants in your life. You guys don't need that rubbish. You don't need that from us. You need to know, well, what does God say? If God has all authority, if when God speaks, life happens, as we see in the very beginning, if that's the case, God speaks and things happen, and we need to hear God speak, not man. 
So our responsibility as leaders, as pastors specifically, is to steward the truth to you, to help you know what the Word of God says, to help you know how to apply it to your life. But also, look what it says in verse 18. The writer says, pray for us. For we are confident that we have a good conscience. In other words, we think we're dealing with God right in all things, desiring to live honorably, he says in verse 19. But notice he says it's something very personal. He says, but I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you sooner. Now, we don't know for sure who the writer of Hebrews is. Therefore, we don't know for sure what the circumstance is. But we think he was one of the leaders of the Jewish churches who was in jail for his faith. And because he was in jail for his faith and he's writing this letter of exhortation, follow Jesus, trust Jesus, even though you're being persecuted, he himself, they're being persecuted. He's writing this and he's saying, listen, but could you pray for me? Because I want to get out of here. <laughs> and I want to see you guys as soon as I possibly can. I love that because it, it gives a sense of this, this man was personally attached to these people. They weren't students that he was lecturing. They were brothers and sisters that he loved. And, and I love this as well because it shows that this was a man who knew he needed God's help. In other words, listen, part of valuing those is, who, lead you, who lead you is like, yeah, seeing them as examples of following Jesus, for sure, and as seeing them as stewards of biblical authority, but also, listen, seeing them as fellow believers who are dependent upon God's grace. That's why as much as we need to pray for you, you need to pray for us. Pray for us. Guys, every single temptation you face, we face. We want money more than we want. We fall into lust just like anybody else. We have pride. We are selfish. Except for the grace of God, we go the same direction. So we pray for you, you gotta pray for us. Let's be honest, if we fall as leadership, there's been enough scandals in Christendom, isn't there? Since the sheep scattering. No, the, the part of practical worship is valuing those who lead you. This is why we make it a priority. This is why part of my job description as lead pastor is developing new leaders. It, through prayer and practical development, I spend probably a fourth of my time developing leaders, helping the guys on the team, praying for the guys on the team, seeing what I can do to give the guys what they need on the team, guys and gals on the team to move forward pour it into men, his disciples. Because this has got to be a priority of the local church. And this is, because the thing is, this is part of my worship to God. So part of your worship to God is to go, amen, bro, we're praying for you and we're behind you, 100%. Guys, listen. We, none of us want people who are yes men. You know what I mean by that? Who just agree with us because, well, we don't want to, they're the authority, No. What we want you guys to say yes to, to say amen to, is what this book says. So we expect you, if we get the book wrong, to come and say, I think you got the book wrong, bro. Then we need to think about that again. But if we got the book right, and we are calling you as individuals, look, man, you gotta respond to what God says here. You gotta believe that he does love you. You gotta turn from that sin. That it's not us it's not our authority that's being flexed. It's God's authority that's being flexed. Are you guys following me with that? All right, let's move on. So, the writer goes on to say in verse 8, 
Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I don't know if you noticed when we read through these verses, they kind of seem like they all stand alone. Uh, Did it feel that way? Maybe it's just the English translation, but it felt like they all stand alone. But actually, they all blend together. Because besides just valuing those who lead you, part of practical worship, listen, is understanding the work of Jesus. Do you realize that right now, this activity of you listening to a sermon is meant to be an act of worship? Engaging your mind, trying to wrap your head around who this Jesus is and how we're supposed to follow him, that is meant to be an act of worship. Such a valuable act of worship that when Mary and Martha, when Jesus was at Mary and Martha's house, you remember what happened, right? Martha's busy, she's serving, she's around doing stuff, right? And where's Mary? Sitting at Jesus' feet, receiving the word. And what did Jesus say when, Mary come, when Martha comes in going, I need help, don't you care? He says, Martha, Martha, I care about you greatly, but what Mary's doing is the one needful thing. It's the primary thing, and it's not going to be taken from her. Just sit and listen. Now, I'm not just talking about that you do that, obviously, using the Mary and Martha illustration. Obviously, that applies more than just preaching. It applies to your daily devotional life as well as other things. But the point is, this is meant to be an act of worship. And so understanding the work of Jesus is an act of worship. Now, the author makes this really plain statement. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So part of understanding the work of Jesus, listen, is to trust in his unchanging character. Now, here's what's amazing. According to all Hebrew thought, the only unchangeable one is God himself. So this is at least an allusion to the deity of Jesus. And we've seen earlier in the book of Hebrews where the author definitely sees Jesus as God the Son. But here's what's also interesting, or also important. When we're talking about unchanging character, do we realize that means an unchanging character means an unchanging standard? So just because God chose to put on flesh 2,000 years ago doesn't mean that the standards that he set as that God become man have changed now. Because he's an unchanging God, because Jesus is our unchanging Savior and Lord, his standard is unchanging. Now that's, that's difficult and it's sobering and sometimes it's hard to know, well, how does that work with what seems to be the consensus today? But it's still a reality. But it also means this, an unchanging character means an unchanging hope. Isn't that great news? Do you know why you can know that you know, can know, that you can know, that you can know, that you can know, that God loves you? Do you know why you can know that? Because he said so, and he doesn't change. Human nature is we change all the time. We change on a daily basis, on a moment-to-moment basis sometimes. One of the characteristics that uh, my wife has realized about me in 25 years of marriage is I am moody. <laughs> Shocker. Every, and you guys are all going, yeah, we've noticed. Yeah. I'm moody. I can be a moody person. I'm changeable. That's not the way our God is. The scripture says, God says this about himself in, in the book of Malachi, or for you Italians out there, Malachi. In the book of Malachi, he says, For I am the Lord, I, de- I do not change, therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. 
Guys, the book of Malachi is God, through Malachi, really rebuking his people for falling so short of what they were supposed to be. So when he says, I do not change, therefore you're not consumed, he's saying, do you realize why I haven't wiped you out yet? (laughs) I haven't wiped you out because I'm good and I don't change. Because I'm merciful and I don't change. Because I made a promise to you and I don't change. So when the scripture says in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, it's meant to give us this great hope. Not only has his standard not changed, but his character doesn't change, therefore our hope doesn't change because our hope is in him. Then he goes on in verse 9 to say this, don't be carried away. You can almost add a therefore. He says, therefore, don't be carried away about with various strange uh, doctrines various and strange doctrines. He says, for it's good that your heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. Now, he's probably referring to uh, the Jewish dietary laws. The context probably bears that out pretty clear. And so with these Jewish dietary laws, of course, these Hebrews were feeling being condemned because they were saying, listen, you've got to keep those Jewish dietary laws. That's what identifies you as a follower of God. And the writer's saying, no, that's not what identifies you as a follower of God. What identifies you as a follower of God is your heart being established by grace. Do you know what grace is? Grace is us getting what we don't deserve. It's God's unmerited favor. Don't confuse it with mercy. Mercy is you not getting what you deserve. So, say you borrow my car and you total my car. Mercy would be me saying, you know what, <coughs> I forgive you and you don't, have to, you don't have to fix the car, I'll fix the car. Grace would be, I'd fix the car, buy another one just like it and give you that car. That would be grace. Now, none of us would do that, would we? <laughs> but God does. This is why our heart needs to be established by that. This is, this is, and grace is connected to Jesus. Listen, understanding the work of Jesus means we're resting in the grace that Jesus brought. Look what the scripture says in John chapter one. I'm reading from the NIV because I like the way NIV used these verses. It says, listen, out of Jesus' fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In other words, listen, when God gave the law to his covenant people, there was a measure of grace in that in the sense that it graciously exposed to them their need for a God who redeems, their need for a God who saves. But when Jesus comes, listen, he is the God who redeems. He is the God who saves. They get more grace. Grace and truth come through Jesus. See, grace is not just getting what you don't deserve, but also, listen, grace is God's divine enabling. It's God enabling you to do what you could not do for yourself. Grace. So it's it's foolish for us to let our hearts get established by something else. Now listen, most of us here probably don't struggle with dietary rules as far as our spirituality is concerned. Some of us might. There might be some of you who struggle with that. Maybe you have a church background where you you were told you couldn't eat red meat on Fridays, or maybe you have a church background where you were told uh, that um, you can't have shellfish, or maybe you have a church background that said you can only eat vegetarian. There are different churches that would teach those different things. So maybe you do struggle with that. But most of us don't so much 
replace the foundation of grace or the establish the stability of grace in our hearts with food, we establish it with something else, some other religious work. I'll tell you what I do. I tend to have my heart established by my devotions. If I had a good devotional today, if I spent time reading the Word and, and wrote a lot down in my journal and a great time of prayer, my heart's established by that devotional time. But you know what happens? That begins to be something good and then it begins to slide into something bad because then I'm trusting if I have a good devotional time that I'm okay, that I'm stable, that I'm acceptable to God. Then what happens on that day I have a bad devotional time? I get up late or what happens more than that is someone calls me during my devotional time or I get distracted or I get caught up with other things and I don't have time to kind of follow through with my devotional time. Then what happens? Then where's my heart established? Replace that with church attendance or service or tithing or whatever you want to do. All good things that God commands us to do, but don't establish our hearts, do they? Don't let your heart be pulled backwards and forwards by all this religious nonsense. Let your heart be established by grace. Jesus brought grace. Jesus is why you know that God says, look, there's more where that came from. Let your heart be established by grace. Can we be honest? That's harder to accept, isn't it, than like what we talked last, last week. It's funny, last week, how many people came up and said, oh, that was a great message. I was really blessed by that. Not, not that I don't appreciate the encouragement, but it's funny because it seems to be the messages where I tell you, do this and do that. You guys are like, oh, we love it. Tell us what to do. <laughs> yes. But then when I say, just receive grace, you're all, it's kind of uncomfortable. Do you know why? Because we want to be told what to do so we can do something and feel like, ah, now God's, on, God's obligated to me. God is never obligated to you, ever. The good news is that God brings grace. <laughs> that Jesus brought grace that your heart might be established, that your life might be established, that your being might be established before a holy God forever. That's the work of Jesus. Understand that. He goes on to say this. In verse 10, he says, we have an altar uh, from which those who serve in the tabernacle have no right to eat. Again, he's talking about the, what's going on with the Hebrews and, and the, the pull back into the old sacrificial system. He's saying, listen, forget about their dietary restrictions. The guy, these guys can't even eat what we get to eat. They can't consume what we have. Because he says, for those bodies of the animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. And so what he's kind of doing is he's in, in one stroke, he's kind of saying, listen, you're not connected to those guys anymore the way they want you to be connected. You might be Hebrew by birth, but you're no longer Hebrew by religion. And so the reality is he's saying, listen, you don't need to go back to that stuff. And he goes, and, and let's think about what they did or what they do. They take this sin offering as God commands, and that sin offering to atone for God's people on the Day of Atonement has to be taken outside the camp. What does that sound like? He says, it sounds like Jesus, verse 12. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered where? Outside the camp. Now we're talking about this practical worship through the understanding of the work of Jesus. And part of understanding the work of Jesus, listen, is being willing to suffer with Jesus. And the example of suffering with Jesus that he's first giving here is this example of suffering outside the camp. Listen, as the sacrifice of God, listen to save other people. 
Now we love this promise of God in Romans 8.28, all things work together for God for those that love Him and are the called according to His purpose. We love that because it comforts us that all the suffering that we're going through, God has a purpose for it. But this is the mistake that we often think. We think God has a purpose for it. Somehow it's going to be better for me if I suffer. So maybe what's going to happen is I'm suffering now, but later on God's going to bless me with something greater. So we always see that the the purpose of the suffering is to make me happier or to benefit my life. Did Jesus benefit from his suffering? No, you did. So listen, understanding the work of Jesus, part of that is us being willing to suffer with Jesus and part of that, listen, is us recognizing that God sometimes calls us to suffer for the benefit of others. Listen to what Paul says. Listen, in in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Paul says, I now rejoice in my suffering for you and fill up in my flesh, notice, what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. What is lacking? How could anything be lacking in the suffering of Jesus? Well, there's nothing lacking in in the sense of pain for your sins. But what he's saying is this, what is lacking for us now, anyone who didn't see Jesus suffer and rise from the dead, what's lacking now, now is for us to see what does that suffering look like? Do people actually suffer for the benefit of others? We believe that that idea, but I need to see it in real life. You know where he shows it? Through people. Paul was willing to suffer because he thought, listen, if I suffer, it gives credibility to the gospel. Sometimes, guys, God allows us to suffer because he wants to give credibility to the gospel. Now, I don't mean that to be trite about your suffering. I, I really don't know the kinds of stuff that all of you are going through, and I don't want to make you feel like it's not a big deal. So I know it's a big deal. But have you ever thought, you, those of you who, who are already Jesus followers, have you ever thought that maybe God's saying, I want you to suffer because someone else is going to benefit, someone else is going to come to faith? If God spoke to you audibly and said, okay, I'm going to give you cancer, stomach cancer, which I think is one of the most painful kinds of cancer, I'm going to give you stomach cancer and I'm not going to heal you from it until you're resurrected. But I'm going to give you stomach cancer and because as you trust me to endure that stomach cancer, I'm going to save 10 people through your witness. What would you say? you probably go, all right, wow, if God's actually going to save, I'll do it. What about five people? What about one person? What about one person, and you're just one of the many reasons that one person comes to faith? You see, what happens is in our economy, we think, okay, my life is measured by, the goodness of my life is measured by how much pleasure I have, how much pain I avoid, and we forget, listen, God is calling us and understanding the work of Jesus. If we're going to follow Jesus, we've got to be willing to suffer with him, and sometimes that means I'm going to suffer only because somebody else is going to benefit. John, go back to telling us what to do. That's, that's <laughs> easier. But there's more. Listen. Verse 13, he says, Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp 
bearing his reproach, for here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Being willing to suffer with Jesus isn't just about the sanctification of others, but listen, it's doing so as an outsider to this world. I'd be willing to bet that at least some of you, if not a, a, whole, a large portion of you, are struggling in your decision to follow Jesus, whether or not you want to really follow Jesus, because you're sensing that if I follow Jesus, people are going to think I'm nutty. They're going to think I'm weird. They're going to think I'm backwards. They're going to think I'm old-fashioned. They're not going to treat me the same way. And you'd be right. You see, following Jesus is to be treated like Jesus, and to be treated like Jesus is to be marginalized. So we have this mindset that everybody loves Jesus. They think they, they, everybody likes the idea of Jesus. They all want to claim Jesus. But that's not true, especially when he actually was here. People were marginalized, and what was amazing about Jesus is as they marginalized him, he loved them still. Suffering with Jesus, listen, is, means this. In part, it means as people push you away into the margins, you love from the margins. That's what it means. So part of practical worship, listen, is us understanding the work of Jesus. That means trusting in his unchanging character. It means resting in the grace that he brought. It means being willing to suffer with him. But also, listen, look at verse 15. It means to honor him through sacrifice, or honor his sacrifice through praise and generosity. Verse 15, therefore by him, notice by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice to praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks in his name. The Bible says plainly, give, in, in everything give thanks for this is the will of God. didn't say in everything feel thankful, but in everything give thanks. The Bible talks about praise as a sacrifice. Why do we sing in church? Do we sing in church because it makes us feel good? That's why we act like we sing. Oh, worship was great today. What we mean by that is I felt great during worship. But is that why we sing? We don't sing to make ourselves feel great, though that is often a great byproduct of us worshiping. We sing as a sacrifice. God, I'm thinking of everything else but you, but I'm going to engage my mind, engage my, my mouth, I'm going to engage my body, and I'm going to even engage my emotions to declare your glory. I'm going to sacrifice. God's pleased with that. It's interesting because it says that we are not to just to do this to him, not just to Jesus, but by Jesus. Do you realize you don't have a right on your own to worship God? You do not have that right. It is a privilege to worship God, and you don't have that right, and neither do I. But by Jesus, we're given that right. We get to do what only angels did before. We get to stand in the presence of God, of Almighty God, and declare His glory and know there's a smile on His face. which is why our worship should be joyful and not, I'm here again, whatever. Because by Him, by Jesus, we can bring a sacrifice of praise. But I love the fact that the writer makes it even more practical because what does he say in verse 16, right? 
He says, but also, <clears throat> don't forget to do good and to share with what sacrifices God is well pleased. The, the idea here is being generous, not just with money, but with time. Please know this. Please know this. I, in fact, Ollie will testify to this fact. On my desk is a stack of thank you cards that I've had there for a year waiting to fill out to send to all of you lot who serve at church. <laughs> Forgive me for being so laxed on that. But I leave them there, one, because I've got to make sure I get that done one of these days, but also because I think I am so thankful for the sacrifice that you guys make. There's almost 70 people in this church that have signed up to, to, to or committed to serve. Almost 70, that's amazing. It's a sacrifice that's not forgotten, not just by me, but more importantly by God himself. To serve, to give. What Joe exhorted us was absolutely right. Coming to church, seeing that, okay, part of my worship, part of my practical worship is to have this time, this 20 minutes or 15 minutes of break between uh, the song and the word. And what are we going to do? We're going to worship by looking how we can serve people. Sacrificing our time. Listening. Losing your place in the queue so you don't get the coffee that you wanted. There's no more French vanilla. Such a sacrifice. But we do that in all seriousness, guys. Why? Because God's worthy and he's pleased. Don't you know, when you listen to that person talk about their, their, their problems that you think, okay, this guy's talk, told me this like five million times and it's, I don't feel like I can help them. But when you patiently listen and remember, except for the grace of God, so go you. And you listen and you pray and say, Lord, you can do something in this person's life. I trust you to do this. That God, again, is pleased. There's a smile on God's face. When someone spills their drink and you go and you're the one that goes cleans it up for them, there's a smile on God's face. God's pleased with these sacrifices. Guys, listen, we are honoring the sacrifice of Jesus, which brings us into the family of God by doing such sacrifices. That's practical worship. Interesting, because the Bible talks about this, and this is when the apostle is talking about actually being generous financially. He writes this in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord <coughs> Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through poverty might become rich. I love that, because when the scripture does talk about giving financially, it's never about guilt. It's not even about need. It's always about grace. It's always about God's been so good to you respond by being good back to others. Now, moving on. <coughs> In verse 20, where am I? No, where am I? I completely lost my place. Yeah, I'm in verse 20. <coughs> In verse 20, Paul says, Now may the, the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the, new, of the everlasting covenant, make you complete. I mean, the God of peace. This is really just the end of a letter, and these are the kinds of bits that are really easy to skip. Oh, he's just saying goodbye in a nice, flowery, religious way. But there's a lot of great stuff here. Because look at what he's saying. He's calling our God the God of peace. That's the God who, who makes peace with his enemies. We were God's enemies. He made peace with us by sending his son. The God of peace. The God who gives us a peace that is better than understanding, the scripture says. 
that can reign in our hearts even when circumstances are nuts. The God of peace who is also, notice, listen, the great shepherd of the sheep who brings the blood of the everlasting covenant, the blood of his own son. See, here's the third thing we need to do if we're going to practically worship God. One is, of course, value those who lead you. Two is understanding the work of Jesus. But here's the third thing. We need to trust God's work in us. Guys, do you realize that, that God himself is shepherding you? He is caring for you. He is leading you. He is protecting you. He is providing for you. That's what it means to shepherd. I love this because in the context, of course, of you know, valuing those who lead you, do you realize it's, it's actually the Lord who's wanting to lead you? It's actually the Lord who's wanting to shepherd you. That's why we keep pointing past ourselves into him. Jesus called himself the good shepherd, didn't he? In John chapter 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. He said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand and I and my Father are one. He's the great shepherd. He, all those things that he's describing there. He communicates, he calls, he keeps it's God who's shepherding you. Do you believe that? He says in verse 21, here's what he's doing that shepherding. He's making you complete in every good work to do his will. He's working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. God's working in you that you might be pleasing to him. That's what the scripture says. And he's not just working in you temporarily or in fits and starts. He is perfecting you. God's perfecting you. And remember, perfect in God's mind, <laughs> perfect by God's standard, is love. God who himself is love, who's always been love for eternity past, who always will be love, has sacrificed that we might be brought into that love. And one day, we are going to actually love God as He's worthy. We're going to be that perfect. Every thought, deed, action, word will be to His glory. We'll love Him perfectly. And guess what else? One day we'll love each other perfectly. God's perfecting us. It's because we have this hope that He's perfecting us that we pursue that now. God, I want to learn now to love you with my heart, mind, soul, and strength. I want to learn now to love those whom you love. Do you trust God's work in you? He's perfecting you. A couple more scriptures quickly. <laughs> Paul writes this in the end of the, the 1 Thessalonians. He says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely or perfectly, same word. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. The end of Jude's little postcard epistle. Jude was the half-brother of Jesus, don't forget. And Jude wrote this. He like breaks into what we call doxology or song of praise to God. And he says, Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling, notice, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, 
To God, our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. God's able to do this. Do you believe that? Because practical worship is trusting. God, I believe. I want to declare your worthiness by believing that you're working in me to shepherd me and to perfect me. Now, in verse 23, he kind of just sums up with some practical stuff. In verse 23 to 25, he says, Now know that our brother Timothy has been set free. Obviously, Timothy was in prison, probably with this man who was in prison. Uh, with whom I shall see you if he, if he comes shortly. He says, Greet all those who rule over you, all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. Amen. And we think, oh, that's lovely. But do you, do you, don't miss, don't miss the fact that this writer had real relationships with these people. He calls Timothy what? Brother. You see, here's, here's what God calls us to trust. This is part of our practical worship. We're trusting God's work in us as individuals, but we're trusting God's work in us corporately as a family. We have to believe for one another that God's working in us, God's changing. If we don't believe that, we're going to get impatient with each other. If we don't believe God's working in us, working in our midst, we're going to give up on each other. We've got to believe that God's working in us. We're a family. This is why Paul writes, and I'll close with this verse, for this reason I bow the knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. We're one family the family of God. If you are a Jesus follower, if you've put your faith in Him, if you've believed that He is indeed God's Son and that His death on the cross paid for your sins and that He's been resurrected from the dead, that He's alive today, if you believe that, you are part of God's family. You're part of this family. And if you want to worship God for that, then you should. You've got to trust that He's working in you and He's working in these people as well. You've got to believe that. That's what He calls you to. If you're not in God's family, as I said last week, I say again today, why not? What's keeping you from putting your faith in Jesus? If you don't have a good reason, then why don't you humble yourself before his authority? Why don't you admit that you've sinned against others and you've sinned against him? And why don't you believe that because he has authority to say you're forgiven, that he has indeed he will indeed declare you forgiven if you'll turn from your sin and put your trust in him. Why don't you confess that he's risen from the dead? If you don't have a good reason, then do it today. Cry out to God today and let him save you.